This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. As you know, I have a great love and devotion for our canonized saints and holy people. But as I've mentioned a number of times, we so often focus on perhaps just one or two major events in their lives. And while these are key elements, perhaps it would be better if we knew more about their everyday existence and all those small details that made them what they are. These can be very important lessons for us, telling us, too, how we should live our lives and perhaps giving us an insight on how we can be a more positive influence on our children. I've quoted Professor Joe Brown so many times, little boys play the way men live, and little girls play the way women live. What examples are we giving? Or are we giving that job to the entertainment industry? Enough said. When I mention St. Maria Goretti, undoubtedly we have a mental image of this remarkable girl's dedication to purity and the price she paid for her beliefs. But how did this all come about? Well, that's our story for today. The Gorettis, Santa and Luigi, lived with their three children, Maria and two younger boys, in a mountain village named Coronado, close to the Adriatic Sea in northern Italy, where, as hard-working farmers, life was difficult, particularly in the winter when the howling winds and freezing weather made the lands to the south seem like, like a paradise on earth. Other friends were moving southward, and during a frigid winter, Luigi announced that the time had come for the family to move south, as their friends had done, with the Rome area as their destination, where they could lease farmland and live in a more comfortable surroundings. So as spring approached, the Gorettis, as well as another friendly neighbor, made the 200-mile journey toward Rome by ox cart, hopefully to find their happiness there. But Rome was a big city, bigger than they had imagined, and they felt lost in its hugeness. And the city was, well, just too big for poor farmers from the north. But Luigi heard of a count named Mazzolini, who owned property further south near a smaller community named Natunio. The count would either lease the land for a percentage or sell the property outright. Well, this sounded promising, and the Gorettis and their traveling companions, the Cimarellis, again headed southward, where they eventually met the Count and became sharecroppers with the Count, who also provided housing for the families. They became next-door neighbors. Luigi's land was flat, and where the mountains once provided cooling breezes, he was faced with scorching temperatures in a treeless environment on land that had been too long neglected. Consequently, the work became more extreme, and the stifling heat and hard work over the years eventually caused his health to fail. Over time, he was not able to accomplish all that he had been able to do in the past. He was constantly breathless and often had to rest. 
Well, the Count was angered at his lack of production and announced that he would send two men to help, but Luigi would have to work out an agreement with them for their financial arrangement as, as well as providing housing for them. The next day, Giovanni Serenelli and his 18-year-old son Alessandro arrived. Giovanni's wife had died in an asylum, and another son was still a resident there. However, Alessandro appeared strong and muscular, so Luigi hoped that this would be an answer to their prayers. A room with two iron beds was provided for them, and this partnership of sorts had started. For a while, things moved comfortably. The men worked hard, and it seemed the prospects for a happy life were brighter. But then winter came, and with it, less work and more free time. Things were good when everyone was busy, but the free time gave the elder Serenelli more time to drink, and while he seldom became drunk, the alcohol made him overbearing and and Alessandro, well, he became even more morose as time passed. He had no friends, and Asunta became aware that the young man was bringing all kinds of lurid magazines into the house, which he apparently hid in his room. It should also be noted that his father had never taken much of an interest in him, and the boy had, in his mid-teens, worked as a stevedore and had picked up all sorts of bad habits and foul language from the sailors with whom he worked. Even living so closely together, he was usually sullen and unfriendly. Asunta considered speaking with his father about this, but she was afraid this would just add to the tensions in the household and that it would affect their income and livelihood. Well, as spring approached, Luigi's health became even more fragile, and he was forced to spend more and more time in bed. His health began to deteriorate even more, and he was never able to completely recover. And before he died, he kept repeating over and over again, Go back to Coronaldo, go back. But there was no way that Asunta could return. They had no money, they now had seven children, and their only salvation was to continued the lease arrangement with the Count and renegotiate the contract with the Serenellis. In effect, the end result was that the senior Serenelli actually became the master of the farm, but allowed Asunta and her now seven young children to continue to live there. However, Asunta, and particularly Maria, as the oldest child, became practically servants and day laborers. They would love to have returned to Coronaldo, but Asunta felt there was no way that she and the children could make the long journey home. It was now early summer in 1901, and Maria was just ten years old, almost eleven, and she was still unable to read. But school had not been available to her, and she had little learning other than the religious teachings she had absorbed through the church. And she was well aware that the age was approaching when she would make her first communion, which at that time was generally around the age of twelve. 
this became Maria's most ardent desire. She would constantly repeat to her mother and whomever would listen that she could no longer live without Jesus. Sometimes, you know, we take things so for granted that we don't realize what we have. Well, Maria's constant thoughts about First Communion finally motivated Asunta to arrange for her to receive the necessary instructions in a nearby village. While Maria had always been a polite child, Asunta noticed a pronounced change in her whole attitude as she prepared for her First Communion. The religious instructions had a profound effect on the young girl. There was a sense of holiness that was very obvious in everything she did, from the way she treated her siblings and the obedience and respect she gave to her mother. Not that she had not been respectful before, but her whole attitude and demeanor had gained a stronger significance. And then one day she came running, bubbling over with the announcement that she was soon to make her first Holy Communion, saying, I want Jesus so badly. Even the parish priest remarked to Asunta that Maria amazed him with her understanding of what the Eucharist really was. She had matured far beyond her young age. And there was something else, too. And Asunta, as a mother, was quick to recognize it. Maria was no longer a playful little girl. Perhaps it was her surroundings, but also perhaps it was her love of Jesus that had created this obvious maturity and seriousness. Well, the big day finally arrived, and she joyously received Jesus. And after Mass, all the children hurried to the sacristy to thank the priest and then to greet their parents. That is, all the children except Maria who remained in church offering one thanksgiving after another for her receiving Jesus in the Eucharist. She wanted to be alone with him, and she could not wait to receive him again. Her nighttime prayers became longer, and she would constantly do an examination of conscience to see if she had committed a sin on purpose or by accident. Shortly after her first communion, she heard one of the other young girls telling a boy a story that was off-colored, and she wondered how could she so soon have forgotten that she had received Jesus. Maria had not only learned her lessons, she was living them. And during all of these moments, Alessandro Seminelli had been stalking her, making her feel more and more uncomfortable. He would make comments, and she would try not to listen or to ignore him. In a way, he was hard to ignore because he and his father were able to give her and her mother orders since the death of her father and their rearranged financial situation. Well, one day, as she was working in the field with Alessandro, he grabbed her and said things that she didn't really understand. But then it became obvious to her. He was wanting her to sin. 
To Maria, this was the gravest insult, to actually ask her to sin and to offend God. She was able to shake free and, and ran down the field, hiding behind a hedgerow, and then later quietly working her way back home. In the afternoon, she was to work with him again, but was afraid to be alone with him, and somehow managed to make her escape to the barn, where she hid herself in a haystack for three hours until other people were present and she could again feel safe. Then it appeared that a sort of cat-and-mouse game was starting. Maria's plan was very simple. She would make certain that she would not be alone with him. It worked for a week, and then one day he surprised her when she was making the beds. She attempted to run, but he grabbed, and in an attempt to get away, she managed to scratch his face with her nails. He cursed at her as she ran, threatening to kill her if she told anyone about what had happened. When he left, she locked herself in her room and did not come out until she was certain that he was gone. That was when her mother returned and found that the evening soup had not been heated because she had been hiding, and so Maria was severely scolded for not having the dinner started. The 11-year-old Maria becomes even more serious now, and over and over in her mind she relives Alessandro saying, I will kill you if you tell. Well, as was the custom of that era, people often rested after the noon lunch, but on this one particular day, there was much work to be accomplished. Alessandro's father told him what his duties were for the rest of the afternoon, and then he left. Alessandro tossed an old shirt at Maria, telling her that it had a tear that needed mending, and then he left. It was time for the thrashing in the fields and the hard work, and Maria's mother, Asunta, is told by Alessandro to take his place leading the oxen because he has other chores that need his attention, and he disappears from the barn supposedly for his other duties, but he has other plans. Maria is sitting on a porch, mending Alessandro's torn shirt, when he suddenly appears in the doorway, saying, Maria, come here. She freezes in her position, and he again calls her with an even more demanding tone and grabs her by the arm. As you could imagine how frightened she was as she grabbed for the railing in a futile attempt to resist his powerful grasp. She pleads with him to let her go, but instead he produces his knife and holds it up, threatening her. Well, she manages to escape his grasp and screams for help, but there is no one to hear. She tries to elude him by keeping the table between them. She tries to run, but Alessandro is too quick, and he trips her, causing her to fall. She screams at him, I will not but he grabs her as she continues to plead with him to let her alone. He's on the attack, and he is winning. His brute force is enough, and he points his sharp-edged dagger straight at her heart, giving only two options, yield or death. Well, 
I've heard it said that sometimes when one is really frightened, they're able to summon up more strength than the ordinary, and that's just what Maria did. She was able to twist free of his grasp, screaming, No, I will not. No, Alessandro, that is a sin. Well, this appears to infuriate Alessandro even more, and now the strength seems to be in his corner, but she frees herself again, crying, No, no, it is a sin. God does not want this. If you do this, you will go to hell. You will go to hell. She would not give in. Years later, Alessandro would speak of what happened next. He would say, As she struggled to free herself from his powerful grasp, she continued screaming, God does not want this. Well, he became absolutely enraged at her refusal to his advances, so much as she tried to hold her dress modestly to cover herself. He plunged his knife into her body over and over again. He thought she was dead and then stood up. She was covered with blood and He realized what he had done and ran to his room and locked himself in. The baby Maria had been watching was awake and crying, so Asunta, hearing this, sent one of her daughters to the house to tell Maria to take care of the baby. And then there was a call from someone who had stopped by and had discovered Maria. They were calling frantically for Asunta. Other neighbors, hearing the frantic calls, responded and found Maria's bloody body and carried it into the bedroom. She was still alive, and Asunta arrived and, leaning over the child, asked what had happened, but at that point Maria could not speak. They tried to remove her blood-stained blouse as she made no sound, and, and then they asked her again, Maria, who did this to you? Well, her eyes opened very slightly, and she barely spoke and said, It was Alessandro, Mama. But why? questioned her mother. The answer was simple. She said, Because he wanted to commit an awful sin, and I would not. Well, It's not hard to see that the small village became a beehive of activity, everyone trying to help in one way or another, sending for help, doing something else, and then the house became crowded very quickly with many women doing nothing more than simply weeping. The knife was found where Alessandro had thrown it. The police had been summoned, the doctor arrived, and an ambulance was called, and Alessandro was taken into custody. Maria's situation was deteriorating. She needed surgery at once. The chaplain arrived at the hospital, but Maria exhibited no concern and went to confession as the priest had suggested. She was wheeled into the operating room where the surgery was to be performed without anesthesia for fear of peritonitis. Fourteen wounds were discovered, which included pierced lungs, grazed heart, four chest wounds, and more wounds in the abdomen. One of the doctors said before the surgery, Where you have found an angel, I'm afraid we will leave but a corpse. When her mother went into the room after the surgery, Maria was asking for water, but the physicians were afraid to give it to her. 
she accepted the sacrifice in remembrance of Jesus on the cross. At the insistence of the medical staff, Asunta was sent home to rest. Maria slipped in and out of a coma. She was, of course, in deep pain. She made it through the night. The priest visited her in the morning to bring her communion, and as he did, her face lit up with radiant joy. As it was written, her soul was ready, but she had one more heroic act to perform before she met Jesus face to face. The priest reminded Maria of Jesus and how he forgave those who murdered him. She lay there looking at the crucifix on the wall and then said in a very weak voice, Yes, for the love of Jesus, I too pardon Alessandro, and I want him to be with me in heaven. Asunta asked her daughter if Alessandro had tried to attack her before, and Maria said on several occasions that he had, but she had always rejected him because it was a sin And in reply to her question, why didn't you tell someone, she answered, because he said he would kill me if I did, and I guess he did anyway. Her last agony began at three o'clock in the afternoon. Maria's eyes were fixed on a statue of the Virgin Mary, and her vision of this world was replaced by her reward for all eternity in heaven. The date was the 6th of July in 1902, which, ironically, was the Feast of the Precious Blood. Oh, but the story does not end there. There is the question, what happened to Alessandro Serenelli? And that's the rest of the story. Of course, Alessandro was arrested and stood trial, and instead of exhibiting remorse, maintained an arrogant and defiant demeanor, claiming that he was innocent, and to all intents and purposes he was being unjustly framed for Maria's murder. However, the evidence against him was so powerful that he was made to look foolish by his protests, and he ultimately confessed to the crime and was sentenced to 30 years at hard labor because of his young age. A priest attempted to counsel him, and he all but attacked the priest, screaming that it was all the priest's fault for what he taught Maria, and Alessandro refused to see him. The priest, in leaving, told him that Maria would see to it that he would one day change his mind. But Alessandro screamed back, never, never. He blamed the church and wanted to have nothing to do with it. And he remained a violent, unremorseful man. But that was to change about eight years later. You see, one night Maria appeared to him in a dream and he would later describe what he saw. He said, I saw Maria dressed in dazzling white, gathering fourteen beautiful lilies from a garden and handing them to me. As I took them from her hands, they were transformed into small lights that glowed like candles, and the fourteen lilies represented each of her wounds. 
awakening, Alessandro called his jailers, asking for a priest. Well, the jailers laughed and refused, telling him to write the priest a letter. Well, he did, and the letter said, and I quote, I am deeply sorry for what happened. I have taken the life of an innocent girl whose one aim was to save her purity, shedding her blood rather than give in to my sinful desires. I publicly retract the evil I have done and beg pardon of God and of the stricken family. One hope encourages me that I may one day obtain God's pardon, as so many others have. And it was signed, Alessandro Serenelli, November the 10th, 1910. After serving his term and upon his release from prison, Alessandro sought out Maria's mother, to whom he went to ask for her forgiveness. With the burden of old age, she forgave him, and they went to church together. He spent the remainder of his life living in a monastery, working as a gardener, and died at the age of 87 in a Capuchin monastery. Throughout Italy and beyond, the story of little Maria Goretti spread like wildflower. The, the story of the little girl and her decision to follow the rule of God at the expense of her own life was an inspiration to everyone. And on the 27th of April in 1947, before a crowd estimated at about 600,000, Pope Pius XII canonized little Maria Goretti a saint as her 82-year-old mother looked on. Among the words of Pius XII, he said, We greet you, O beautiful and lovable saint, martyr on earth and angel in heaven. Look down on your glory on this people who love you, glorifies you, and exalts you. On your forehead you bear the full brilliance and victorious name of Christ. Maria Goretti may have died a martyr's death a hundred years ago, but her life and heroism is a heavenly message even more needed today. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network.